Um, welcome everyone to our first event of the term. Um, thanks very much for joining us and yeah, welcome to what I'm sure will be a very productive event. Um, my name is Dr. Polly Withers. I'm a Leverhulme Early Career um, Fellow at the Middle East Centre. I work broadly speaking on um, gender and sexuality in popular culture and media in, in the Middle East, in, in Palestine in particular. Um, so I have the great honor of chairing this event today. Um, we're very, very, very happy here at the Middle East Center to be hosting Professor Nagla Rizik, whose um, title today is called Artific Artificial Intelligence and Development in MENA, Inclusion or Inequality. Um, as I said, this is our first event of the term, so we're all very excited. Um, so just some brief housekeeping from me. The event will last for an hour from five till six uh, London time. Um, Nagla will speak for around 35 minutes-ish, um, and there'll then be time after that for discussion. So please, as I'm sure everyone is aware with Zoom by now, um, please put your questions in the Q&A box if you have these as they come up. Um, I will then um, direct these to Professor Rizek when she's finished her, her keynote. Um, again, just to note, the event's being recorded. Um, and a very important point about this particular event, um, that I hope some of you have seen, is that this, this event, Professor Rizek's event, launches um, series three of the Middle East Centre's Instant Coffee podcast series. Um, I've been very lucky to have a sneak preview at the, uh, at the podcast. I really, really would um, encourage audience members to check out the podcast. Um, and some background about Instant Coffee, just in case you haven't come across it before. Instant Coffee features 20 to 30 minute conversations with activists, artists and academics, as well as practitioners, sorry, working in and around the Middle East. Um, this, the theme of this season is technology, hence um, the event today. And um, Professor Rizek's very uh, important expertise on this topic of technology in the Middle East. Um, and in this particular series, we have episodes exploring everything from the historical development of technology in medieval Islamic hospitals to Iraqi fintech and cryptocurrency in Iran. And as I said, I've had the great pleasure of having a sneak peek. So do, do go and check out the, the series. Um, the first event, which came out on Tuesday, I think, um, was on digital rights and big tech in MENA, um, with a very important section on Palestine. Um, and episodes will, from now, be released every two weeks on a Tuesday. Um, you can follow Instant Coffee on Instagram and all your favourite streaming platforms. The link should be in the chat box, but Nadim um, will put that in if it's not already. Um, and very importantly, Nagla also has her own episode on the podcast, so keep an eye out for that. This is why we wanted to invite her to give a keynote talk on AI and technology in the region. So um, that's kind of housekeeping out of the way. I will now introduce Nagla and we'll then um, move into her keynote. So Nagla Rizik is Professor of Economics and Founding Director of the Access to Knowledge for Development Centre at the American University in Cairo School of Business. Nagla's area of research, teaching and advocacy is the economics of knowledge, technology and development um, with focus on governance of responsible data and artificial intelligence, fair work in the platform economy, innovation, gender and inclusion in Egypt, the Middle East and North Africa. 
Her authored works include Artificial Intelligence and Inequality in the Middle East in the Oxford Handbook of Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, which came out in 2020, um, and The State of Open Data in the Middle East and North Africa um, in State of Open Data, Histories and Horizons, which came out in 2019. Um, Nagla also leads the MENA Hub for Feminist AI Research, sorry, the MENA Hub for Feminist AI Research Network, the North Africa Hub of the Open Africa Innovation Research Partnership, and the Egypt team within the Fair Work Project led by the Oxford Internet Institute. So lots of very exciting projects um, that Professor Rizik is involved in. Um, okay, so I'll now hand the floor over to our very wonderful speaker, um, and as I said, please use the Q&A chat box to ask questions um, for the Q&A. Okay, thanks, Nagla. Thank you very much, Polly. That's, uh, and thanks uh, to the Middle East Center for inviting me. I'm honored and really humbled. It's a pleasure to be speaking uh, to you all and thanks for uh, guests who have joined. Uh, let me then in the uh, 35 minutes that I have make the best of my time to deliver uh, a message. So uh, what, oops, let me, okay. Um, basically as, as this, my talk today is based on the work that I did for the chapter on AI and inequality in the Middle East. Uh, it's an updated version of this, of this work. And uh, basically my talk, I make three points, but I will make point zero. I want to start talking about the paradox of technology and inclusion, which is one tension I will bring up later in my conclusion. Uh, my talk will focus on the context. I will talk a little bit about the region because we cannot talk about technology um, before, you know, unless we look at the realities of the region, the very unique characteristics that we have in this part of the world. I will then move to talk about the more of the peril, look at the AI in MENA, data, algorithm, and people. Then I will talk a bit about the promise and end up with the question of inclusion or inequality. So my very first point is the paradox of technology and inclusion, which I always start any work that I do with this. The AI, artificial intelligence, like digital technologies, like any technologies have the, the potential for um, uh, promoting inclusion, development, uh, you know, a great advancement in, in, in human uh, wellness and, and well-being, but also lies in them lies a trigger for inequality and um, uh, marginalization. So uh, the, the, usually the description is with physics, you know, centrifugal and centripetal forces. There are forces away from the center to empower the small player, to, for inclusion of citizens and, and you know, the, the marginalized small business, et cetera. But at the same time, there is the potential for perpetuating hierarchies, state power, uh, you know, big tech, et cetera. And the question is, how do we uh, capitalize on the promise and uh, try to overcome the peril? So that's the first paradox, the tension that will come in my conclusion, actually. Then I will move on to talk about the region. Uh, uh, the, the MENA region is not a homogeneous region. It's very diverse, as we all know. Different, you know, there are various levels of incomes, high income, low income countries, middle income, different uh, populations. But if, despite the diversity, there are some commonalities. And the number one commonality that is relevant, in my opinion, to this, to the topic of today is our, the demographics. It is a region that with more than 55%, uh, less than 30 years of age. It's a young region. Usually people talk of a youth bulge. If you look at the demographic pyramid, it's what you see uh, ahead of us. But it's also a region that has the highest global rates of 
youth unemployment, and that's important. Uh, so the, the figure for 2022 is 25% of the youth is um, uh, unemployed, and I hope you can see the rest of my screen. If you look at the red arrow on the right, you have for females, it's 42.5% so for of the youth are uh, unemployed. So the figure is 25% for youth, females 42, 43, males about 22. Now, if we also move to look at um, the, the employment of um, people with advanced education, so in 2021, 17% of the labor force with advanced education were unemployed. And the map is self-explanatory, showing you, uh, you know, youth uh, between 15 and 24 who are not in employment, education, or training. It's an old figure, but it's indicative. And that's even prior to uh, the current uh, situation that we have seen in the past few years. We also look at female work. Uh, it's a region that has the highest rates globally of female unemployment, that's MENA compared to the rest of the global regions, and the lowest rate of female labor force participation. These statistics are important when we think of technology, AI, and inclusion. A quick look at poverty. Uh, again, the, the, the data from this source, from the World Bank actually to, to bring up this figure stopped at 2018, and while the MENA region is here, it is actually uh, uh, lower than the lower, quote unquote, that the world average poverty. You will see the turquoise line has been increasing, and that's until 2018, prior to COVID, prior to the Ukraine war, prior to the Gaza war. So uh, there is something to be said about poverty in the region and the figures for poverty uh, in the region. Inequality, again, we look at the Middle East here, you look at uh, the share of uh, you know, population, top 10%, the share of income, uh, more than 60%, as opposed to the lowest 10%, their share of, of income. So it tells you that there is a, a high rate of inequality, and compared to the rest of the world, it's really indicative. Uh, the, the issue also is that inequality is multi-layered, multifaceted, complex. It's not just a question of income. It's gender, ethnicity, social background, education, health, digital access, employment, living conditions, political participation, geography, inequality of opportunity, and not just of wealth. This is the setting where the technology is coming in. And the severe contrast in a country like Egypt, for example, when you look at uh, you know, living conditions in neighborhood, but also in richer countries of the region. These are the realities. Now, if we look at access to technology, um, internet use, I mean, the good news is that there has been an increase in uh, the use of internet. The MENA region comes here on top of the, you know, higher than the world, than the rest of the world. But remember, there is diversity in the region, but the use of internet is relatively higher. Also, uh, mobile cellular subscriptions per 100 people. Again, the MENA region is high compared to the rest of the world and other parts of the world. Uh, but still, we have a digital divide between and within countries by income, by age, by gender, education, geography. And there is, uh, again, a diversity between a country like the United Arab Emirates, for example, and Algeria and Syria on the other end. But the good news is there has been an increase. So the blue is 2017, the green is 2022. So there has been an increase in uh, the connectivity uh, and the internet use. 
One characteristic of the MENA region, and that I wrote about as early as 2009 in the very first Arab Knowledge Report, and I quote, and this is something that I myself wrote, um, so generally speaking, it can be said that the change in the actual situation of freedoms in the region has been confined to an improvement in economic freedoms, an analogous improvement in political and intellectual freedoms, democratic, democratic pursuits and freedom of expression has not occurred in most Arab countries. This is as early as 2009. It is not possible to create Arab environments that stimulate knowledge without the existence of an integrated package of freedoms. This is translated, we wrote the original in Arabic, and the Arabic was uh, an integrated package of freedoms. So a quick look at statistics. If you look at the heritage index of economic freedom, comparing the region to the rest of the world in pink, the region is higher than uh, what you see for the globe. Now, you take one indicator of a democracy. I use the economic Economist Intelligence Unit Democracy Index, and you see the, the MENA region scoring much lower than the world averages. There is something to be said about that, and that feeds into the production of knowledge and technology as an and is important. It's the second important tension. I'll bring all of these, all the tensions in the end. It's the second tension when you look at AI and inclusion, and of course, history not far back these days, actually 13 years ago, the failure of trickle-down economics, the, the obsession with economic growth and investment only in technology and not in, uh, you know, not without an eye to inequality and the wellness, um, you know, of, of people just takes us back to a history that I myself lived firsthand. This is a picture that I actually took myself. So uh, where does that leave us? Let's talk a bit about AI then. They, I divide it into data, algorithm, and people. Um, I won't read word for word, but I wanted to you know, give AI, a, it's actually a quoted definition that I like very much of artificial intelligence in a nutshell. You just have to look at the keywords. You know, It involves using computers, using data sets, drawing predictions from data sets and a set of rules called algorithms. Then the algorithms are trained, again, using large data sets so they can make patterns, make predictions, recommend actions, figure out what to do in unfamiliar situations, learning from new data. So it's data, 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 nonstop. And the ability of the system to improve is uh, through experience is known as machine learning. So it's in a nutshell, it's just, data going into you know, a machine pr processed, if you will, continuously uh, with algorithms eventually actually teaching themselves. So that's why I have data algorithm and people. So these are the, I, I chose to put this slide because these are the words that come up when people will talk about responsible AI, ethical AI, these are the, the, the words and I will not read them. They're just, you know, I invite you to just, you know, take a look at all of these words that are the key words that are relevant it's a glossary of words that are relevant when we talk about data and artificial intelligence now data is the mind it's the input it is you know the the you know the the very first the very first thing that is used when we uh, you know with the technology of artificial intelligence i'll talk a bit about data and the perils of data if i may data 
when we have data asymmetry that I write about, data as a source is power. So if, if data is owned by large players, by large, uh, by big tech, by large companies, by uh, multinationals, uh, and you know, and is is not is, is closed and it's not uh, um, accessible to uh, young entrepreneurs. Maybe to uh, create startups, it is a source of market power, and it can be a, a market uh, barrier. W one quote I when I was doing my research from uh, a, a small you know a small company, very successful, an AI company in Egypt, and uh, the, the the CEO told me, young energetic and he told me you know if only if only labs would open their data with all the anonymity with all the ethical standards kept big labs for us to do research and data analytics we would predict epidemics and you guess what he told me this in 2019 that was prior to covid so he said we would there was pandemic was a new word that came to us later but but the idea of data being owned and kept you know as as a treasure with large companies and with big tech and with you know big players can be a source of differentiating uh, in in the market it can actually lead to market concentration data can be locked by the state as well again this is a differentiating between the power of the state and the citizen and how much of open, the percentage of open data in the MENA region is very low and uh, also even if data can be available it is not always in a format that can be user friendly and it's quite often in pdf uh, format then with data there can be a blur and the blur comes from um, aggregation that actually clouds out granulations that are useful you just look at the definition of, of ai so the, the typically you would want data that is disaggregated that is very accurate and very granular. But if data is um, aggregate, uh, then it is not very useful and it can lead to um, faulty conclusions. A typical example is uh, data that is disaggregated by gender for health applications. Uh, this is an example where a, a blur can just hide out, you know, cloud out granularity that is needed. Also, this can lead to data blindness because complete communities can be absent from the radar of uh, the national statistics, the data, national data landscape. If communities and people are, are not available, are not seen by the national data landscapes, then they're not seen in, in national policies. And people usually think of state relief, but that's not only the only thing you want to see people you want to see communities to be able to uh, you know have policies for inclusion and for advancement i have examples that i can maybe in the q and a uh, you know uh, share with you in the interest of time i'll just move on but just in you know uh, informal workers for example they're in, they can be invisible to 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 labor laws to to uh, you know social protection and to entrepreneurship uh, policies informal communities if they're not registered, if they're not properly registered in the uh, state, you know, registry. Uh, and, and we see, you know, many of those in, in our region, for sure. Um, then there is the algorithm. Who designs the algorithm? Who owns the algorithm? And who benefits? So algorithms can be black boxes. Uh, then we need explainable. We need them to be explained. So if they are explained, how can they be explained to the citizen, to the lay person, right? So who designs the algorithms? And, and, and quite 
frankly, quite often you, you will have algorithmic harms because and examples are algorithms that, for example, for credits, if they you know include data on people for credit and include their neighborhoods, uh, their jobs, immediately this can be um, divisive because this can immediately create biases against those who live in neighborhoods that are not necessarily the richer neighborhoods. They can they will immediately give sense that collateral is not insured. So there are there can be algorithmic harms and and. Uh, facial recognition, and I'm not even going to go there, facial recognition for surveillance. So um, there are plenty of algorithmic harms, peril of AI, and we have to be aware of those. So there is a need to humanize the algorithm, make sure that uh, they are explainable to the lay person. And when they are established, they're actually not only done by, by technologists, they're done by domain experts. So if it's in health, it has to include people who are in the health service. It has, they have to take input from the beneficiaries and they need to be uh, really uh, sort of human-centric rather than uh, you know, sort of adopted models that are taken from different uh, contexts. And then there are the people and the quite often cited you know, future of work. I, I, for me, it's not the we are living the future. I mean, we are living the new forms of work. What we work on is called new work, new forms of work that are have been created because of the technology. Jobs lost, jobs gained. Well, you know, the saying goes that any job that can be replaced by a machine will. The typical example, actually, uh, sadly, is the, the call centers, for example. In, in Egypt, there was this was a way to create jobs for young men and women who are graduates of universities, who have uh, languages, who can work in call centers. But more and more, this is being taken up by machines. So these young people are out of jobs. This is just one example. So when we look at the region, middle-skill work is usually the one that is immediately lost for, um, for a machine, and lower skills, of course. So... What will happen to the higher skill workers? Well, sadly, they may end up, and they do end up actually, um, you know, going to the global north or to richer countries of the region where AI um, is advanced, and that's a reality. So you, the region will face, does face brain drain of the high skilled, the medium skilled, the threat of losing work. So how do you retain skilled workers? Of course, the talk of skilling, Reskilling, upskilling. I talk of cross-skilling, cross skilling between different uh, fields and different specializations. So, uh, in that sense, of course, there are new forms of work. There is the gig work, so-called gig work, which is ground workers, sort of the typical uh, ride-sharing work. And there are cloud workers. There is work that's done by click click workers. You know, the the latter usually involves relatively higher skills. So all of these, there are nuances. The, the narrative for the MENA region is very different from what it is in the global north. And that's, we, I work a lot on this. The narrative is very different. So where this work has its um, you know, baggage and it has its problems, there's you know, the lack of protection, et cetera. Sadly, when we are reminded of the statistics I spoke about earlier, it does provide livelihood for people. So the challenge then becomes, how can we make it a fair, fairer, more fair, fair work. And I will talk about this, uh, you know, just a bit uh, later on. So these are issues that we need to look at. The promise, well, uh, people talk about data for development, AI for development, AI for good. 
you just look at the sustainable development goals and for sure we can use the technology for improvement of food security you know to to tackle health problems education uh, climate action plenty plenty of i mean there's plenty of, of opportunities where we can use uh, the, the technology to capitalize on the potential of technology the promise of technology for improvement well rays of hope one ray of hope for sure for the region is the startup scene. And this uh, definitely after the Arab Spring, we have seen an expansion in youth entrepreneurship startup scene in the region. This is the latest slide uh, for, with data from 2022 with an increase in uh, about the investment in startups in MENA is almost $4 billion in 2022, which is an increase over uh, a significant increase over last year mostly in the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, but also with nice, you know, um, nodes in different parts um, of the um, Arab world, of the MENA region. That's a ray of hope for sure. It provides, you know, new work opportunities. It provides, uh, you know, new in chances for innovation. Another ray of hope is governments are, are paying attention. So um, at least 12 countries of the region have some form of an AI strategy. I was involved in the one for Egypt. And, uh, you know, there's an, there are efforts to, uh, you know, to um, apply AI and to promote AI. There could, more could be done. Uh, this is just, a, you know, a part of, with a green um, rectangle is, couple of, of uh, on the objectives of, the, of Egypt's uh, strategy, the vision, and I just the words, you know, uh, promote a human-centric, I mean, th again, this was my contribution, human-centric AI approach, just the key words are important to have that in a government document, you know, um, human-centric AI approach, the well-being is a priority, uh, responsible AI, benefit of society, uh, capitalize on AI as an opportunity for inclusion of the marginalized, not only for safety net, but also for to promote human advancement and self-development. So there are some efforts. Um, I should mention that um, the strategy for Egypt has an initiative uh, for agriculture called Hudhud to help farmers. There is another initiative establishment of a center for uh, uh, health, uh, you know, to, to deal with eye problems related to diabetes using uh, AI. This is, uh, we have really, my team has compiled, uh, you know, as much as we could information on the regulatory environment in the region, uh, which just gives you a sense of the laws that are needed and that are, you know, there are steps being taken. As, as I said, I'm not, I mean, more can be done and should be done. But we do have some steps, some rays of hope, data protection, open some open data portals, the right to privacy, freedom of information. It's not enough. We need a lot more, but also with regulation of technology of AI, uh, because it's so pervasive, it is not we need the regulation not only touching directly on technology, but you need related regulation, like uh, uh, to be taken into consideration with antitrust, for example, competition law, labor law, taxation. So it's quite nuanced and complex. Uh, if I may uh, just mention the role of research, because research is very important. Polly mentioned feminist AI research. I'm very proud to be the MENA hub for feminist AI research. And our partners are um, running a fantastic uh, project using explainable AI-based tutoring system 
for Upper Egypt Community Schools targeting girls, teaching girls in Arabic, uh, math in Arabic, using a personalized tutoring system using AI. Um, also, we are next Sunday, our center turns 14. We are celebrating our 14th anniversary and we are launching the MENA AI Observatory, which is intended and meant to bring researchers together, practitioners, uh, also be a venue to speak to policymakers, bring um, a civil society, and just try to compile activities interactively that are happening uh, on uh, responsible uh, data and AI. We have a project governing responsible AI and data in MENA with partners from the countries that are highlighted. We're trying to study uh, the governance of data uh, in the area of uh, health, for women's health, and also for food security. Still, it's still very important. The technology is still beginning, but we are there is we're starting to build awareness on that. Then um, I mentioned work. Uh, our work with Oxford Internet Institute on fair work in Egypt and the region, you will see on the right, we worked with Fredrich Ebert, Steve Tung on women's informal digital entrepreneurship uh, using technology. And on the left, the map, these countries, we also have uh, the highlighted countries work on the economics of gig work, gig and cloud work. Because as I mentioned, we are aware of the challenges that this type of work workers face in these um, in these, uh, you know, in these um, uh, working ventures. However, in, given the reality and given the, the demographics and the status of the state of work in the region, we would like to flip the argument and improve the working conditions there in order to enable, you know, especially youth and the educated to find means of livelihood and improve the, fair, the conditions of work in these, um, in these ventures. Um, so, um, the question then, AI in MENA inclusion or inequality? There are three tensions to shape the debate. I will remind you, I first spoke of uh, the, the, the paradox of technology, the paradox of technology and inclusion, the ability of AI, the incredible ability of AI to, um, to equalize and to bring, to, to bridge gaps and bring uh, people together, empower the small player in a market and, and, you know, sort of create new businesses for small and medium enterprises, give a voice to uh, political or economic to the individual. Yet at the same time, because of the nature of the technologies, because uh, they are so, uh, and also the intellectual property that surrounds them, they tend to perpetuate large players. They tend to perpetuate hierarchies. So you have horizontal forces and actually vertical at the same time, you know, perpetuating hierarchies. So that's a tension and it needs to be, we need to be uh, aware of that. That's the first tension. The second tension is uh, the, the political, the, 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 sort of the emphasis on economic liberties a lot more than uh, uh, civil liberties and freedom of expression. And technology is an enabler for both. And if we want to promote technology, we need we really need to promote uh, liberties and integrated package of liberties as we uh, as I wrote about in a way that really to, to reap the fruit of um, uh, artificial intelligence uh, and technology. And thirdly, the third tension is the threat of technological determinism. There is um, uh, 
the, the threat here is that when there is an interest to invest only in technology, investing only in technology and not in the complementary factor. What are the complementary variables? What surrounds the technology? Number one is the is people. So if we invest in technology without investing in our people and skilling people to prepare them for the future, then we really are missing a great deal. And the, the, this, this technological determinism can actually backfire. One example in Egypt in the 90s, there was an investment in the internet. There was incredible advancement in um, infrastructure telecommunications, which is great. But this actually was to support the economic restructuring uh, program that took place in the 90s. We scored fantastic growth rates reaching 7%. The eve of the Arab Spring, Egypt's growth rate was 5.1%. And see what happened. Because then the investment technology just pushed growth in one direction that was not really matched by investment in the rest of the economy, in people's Lively, you know, wellness and livelihood, and improving uh, the work, the, the reducing the income gaps. So, decontextualizing decontext, technology is a threat. We need to contextualize technology to invest in in human capital, to invest in the the uh, the, the this, all the surrounding uh, factors in a way that really enables us to reap the uh, the promise of uh, of artificial intelligence. So. The, the debate or the, the, the debate over inclusion or inequality is actually a question of is rooted over uh, these dynamics, the dynamics of the region, the, the realities of the context, the demographics, the, the economic, and social and political realities of the region. This is at the core of the question of inclusion or inequality. So it is very important to be aware of the um, incredible power of the technology to empower and to equalize and to bring, uh, you know, uh, to, to improve, to exacerbate and, and bridge gaps uh, and to capitalize on that and overcome the challenges that could actually result from the, the potential to exacerbate inequalities. So that's the first one. Secondly, it's very important to invest in um, you know, to, to promote a, an integrated package of freedoms. And last but not least, the, the, the make sure that there is an investment in human capital in the, the regulatory enabling environment, the surrounding factors around technology in order to be able to reap the fruit, the, the promise and not the peril of um, artificial intelligence. Thank you very much. Um. Okay, thank you so much, Nagla, for that really, really, really stimulating talk. Um, we have got some questions coming in on the q and A. I just want to make sure I'm aware of time. Um, I'm going to very temporarily colonize, mon monopolize my um, prerogative as chair um, to ask you, um, before we move on to the Q&A, please do um, yeah, use the Q&A box to, to bring in questions. Um, I'm really interested in what you said about feminist AI, sorry, and the use of feminist AI in the region and thinking particularly um, kind of what you opened with in your talk um, about algorithmic oppressions, um, particularly kind of the way that algorithms are particularly oppressive through the kind of lexicon of class, um, of race in particular. So I'm wondering how you conceptualize your work in feminist AI, or if you can conceptualize your work in feminist AI as being able to kind of 
navigate, push back on, speak to the kind of broader network or context of algorithmic oppression, thinking about Sophia Nobel's work and um, people like that. And I, I'm just wondering how kind of, yeah, feminist AI in Egypt is situated within this sphere of kind of these racialized technologies of um, algorithmic oppression. Um, and more broadly, I'm just so fascinated um, in your work on, on um, feminist AI. So thanks so much for bringing, bringing it here. So. Oh, thank you so much for the question. The, what we try to do is uh, we're part of the global network. So, uh, and we are newcomers to the network. We're very proud to have taken this up uh, for the past year. What we try to do is we try to support researchers who um, use algorithms to flip the arguments as transformational. Mm -hmm. So basically, the, so the, the argument here is that we, uh, we've always said we need to mitigate inequalities, we need to, you know, but we try to not use the word mitigate and say overcome inequalities to, for technologies to be transformational. So mm -hmm. the first call for papers, we uh, it was um, uh, algorithmic uh, decision, uh, you know, decision making in a way that changes. Uh, the, for example, the the our recipients for the uh, project on education in Egypt, what they have done to that try to do is really, really, really change the algorithm, uh, design the algorithm in a way that addresses each and every girl in a way that helps her learn the, the, the math in Arabic. Mm -hmm. So the, the, I think the idea here is that because we know that the default would be uh, typically be a bias, if this is done across the board for everyone, people are going to fall off. Mm -hmm. So it is personalized you know, uh, teaching uh, methodology. Now we also, for another example, and this is done by our friends in Latin America, they have developed uh, you know, a, a method, a, an algorithm that connects uh, women in ride sharing mm -hmm. in a way that they can uh, alert each other and get connected and alert each other to any problems on the road or any safety on the road. Now, what I would love to see happen, and this is still something that has not been done from our research on gig work, the, the, we have heard complaints from the drivers that um, the algorithm sometimes puts women at a disadvantage because they drive, their driving hours are less. So mm -hmm. if the bonus is, is based on the driving hours by the ride-sharing company, and if women are not able to put in all those hours, they immediately fall behind in the, um, uh, they immediately fall behind in the, uh, let's say, the bonuses, for mm -hmm. example. The same thing about, you know, when I mentioned about uh, credit rating or about uh, pensions or, or any improvement, if, if workers are seen as workers, and working hours without this disaggregation that we're talking about, the algorithm immediately treats them, you know, as you know, equal and, and equal is not fair because you know, equal is typically if you take the same ladder to look from a window, but if you're a smaller person, you read a higher ladder. That's fair. So mm -hmm. everybody is looking from the same window. So uh, in in that sense, and and I work, I'm not a technologist, but we work with the technologists, and they explain to us how in their uh, they design the algorithms in a way that sees everyone mm -hmm. and that restores the balance and the bias, you know, in favor of uh, of the marginalized. I hope that answers the question. Mm -hmm. Your question. Mm -hmm. But it's an awareness of the capacity of of the algorithm to uh, you know to um, 
to to be biased and 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 attempt to restore that bias and mm -hmm. they do it through technology mm -hmm, mm -hmm. no thanks so much and really fascinating the kind of intersection between offline and online gendered power structures and, and managing those um those kind of how those power structures are replicated in online world so yeah fascinating thank you um okay i'm going to go to the q and a um we've got a couple of questions from the beginning of the talk about um the statistics um okay. someone wanting to know how 100 of the uae's population has access to the internet given that access to it from a cost perspective in the UAE is very high in comparison to other regions of the world. Please keep in mind that 92% of its residents are expatriates, with a majority of them being migrant workers. Given their low salaries, how are they able to access the internet, given that the average monthly income of these workers is US 360 to 400 US dollars? So a question about access through class lenses, through kind of the, what are the material structures of access to or that perhaps that prohibit access to um to the internet in in the uae context in, in particular i'm trying to read the, the question is uh, so basically yes. the question is how is it 100 percent uh given that there are uh migrants there am i right yeah. In understanding yeah yeah exactly question? yeah yeah i my only interpretation and that's pure interpretation on my part is this is what is seen by the lens that captures statistics so I don't know, uh, you know, uh, so this is a per percentage of the population. So we go back to how it is calculated. I don't know how it's calculated. These are the published figures, which tells you that you need to take a lens and look at exactly how this figure was done. Is it the case? I don't know, uh, Sabine uh, posted the question. Is it the case that the migrants are, are not seen in that statistic? I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, like when you look at mobile phones, it's, you know, more than 100%, but maybe everybody has a phone. But with the internet and it's being expensive, either this is being, I, I don't know how they access the technology, but my only interpretation is maybe they're not seen. I don't know. Mm. To be honest, I don't know. I, I cannot mm. speak for that. I will use what is published. So mm. I really don't know. Mm. I'm sorry, that's the best I can I can mm. say. Mm -hmm. No, but very interesting about methodologies and um and... Is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I should also mention one thing in that context, actually, because I write about this. With that's one thing with the with problem with the data. You mentioned methodology, and that's spot on because one of the things that again, if data is is you know calculated or collected top down, mm. it only collects what it sees. And exactly. then you may have, you know, if it's not collected, grounds up. And one of the rays of hope actually in the region, and this gives me a chance to mention it, is that with data-driven innovation that are initiatives that rely on, on uh, collecting data uh, uh, grounds up, like crowdsourcing data, for example, which gives you a different image, a different set of data that is not identical to what you see if you look from a lens that looks stock. Mm -hmm. No, really, really interesting and really important. Um, okay, next question is, what role do you see open banking and open data um, in opening up those data mines and enabling greater data sharing in the region? So that alludes to the point you were making earlier on. Yeah, with open data, of course, open, there's an, an interesting because in the past decade, we've been, you know, advocating for open data. And, and, and then I will also add, it's also, it's put under, uh, you know, questioning with um, generative AI now. 
because uh, once data is open, you know, everybody can, it is a noble cause and we've always advocated for it. And that's wonderful. But then uh, people are now talking about generative AI and with data being open, it's just used and it is going out of control. And not to mention the intellectual property uh, issues that happen with uh, like ChatGPT, for example, the kind of data that is being trained that goes in, it's just no one has control on what is being used. So open data is actually advocated for, for sure. But with banking, again, is another issue because um, when you say open banking, I'm, I'm not sure I'm familiar with the expression. But uh, with open data, for sure, there is uh, something to be said about data used for ethically and used for the right purpose. And with, you know, all of this is, is, is noble, but then there are now starting to be question marks, especially regarding with generative AI can speak to that. And um, the only guarantee, I guess, for that would also be the regulatory environment, because then you need to balance that with what, what is happening. There are already steps taken in the region. Uh, you know, I know that, um, for example, the, in Egypt, there is a charter for, for uh, ethical AI, but I think in also in uh, there is AI ethics done in Saudi Arabia. There is a, a plan, there is the data, uh, there are date, more and more, um, uh, what do you say, regulation uh, around data mirroring the, G, the, the GDPR for better or for worse. But at least there is an interest and, and an action to take steps to regulate the data because it, 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 there is a, a balance between openness and accessibility and, of course, privacy uh, uh, privacy concerns. And then it comes, becomes really more serious with intellectual property once you start talking about generative AI. Mm. So I hope that addresses your um, mm, um, okay, thanks, Nagla. Next question um, is about um, comparative analysis. Someone's wanting to know if, if this kind of comprehensive analysis that you've offered in this talk exists in other regions, for example, Latin America um, or Asia. Um, are there kind of comparative data or overlaps, perhaps? That's a great question, actually. Uh, I will tell you one thing I'm aware of. When we did the Oxford Handbook of uh, Ethics of AI, I was invited to write about the MENA region and there are chapters written about other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. So for sure, aware that this very thick publication had, I have colleagues uh, who wrote about other parts of the world. It took me one year to write that chapter, by the way. I did a lot of studying. I had to learn a lot because it just brings in so many uh, things. And I found myself writing about the political economy of the region. That's why whenever we start wow. talking about technology, it always just falls back to the realities of the region. So, um, so there are one thing also I should add is that there are like-minded uh, institutions like our research centers. There are other, globally, there are a number of you know, research centers working on uh, internet and society, and gradually everyone is, is you know, turning to, uh, of course, the issue of uh, AI, and, uh, you know, from, from whichever angle they are taking. Um, we are part of the network of centers of internet and society, uh, championed by Harvard's Berkman Klein Center, and with, with like, this is one of those networks where uh, really it's a global network and each one of us comes to the network, you know, with their 
a scholarship on the region. So I can think of these two sources for sure as references. The one thing I should also add is, again, in the Oxford Handbook, we were asked to write each author to come up with an annotated bibliography of 10 references about the topic. So this is also a rich uh, resource that you will find uh, on the website. Mm -hmm. I think it speaks very much to the kind of um, rapidity with which this field is growing, kind of research yes. into AI, but research into ethics of AI, it, which is yes. you know, such a new um, subject area. Um, okay, another question. Where do you think the gap is emerging? Sorry, where do you think is the gap in the emerging technologies research? One could argue that this hot topic is everywhere, but are we discussing the right things? Um, not so sure. Hmm, let me try. Is it about the gap in research on, on AI and inclusion globally, do you think? I mean, or, or in particular, or is it about the MENA region? Uh, let, let me talk about the region. Let me talk about the region maybe, and this we can just have a conversation. This can help answer the question. The, 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 uh, the developmental side of AI is not always seen uh, on, is not always seen. So let me, even at the level of strategies and, you know, uh, and government action and regulatory action, the, what is missing, in my opinion, sometimes is the, the, the human capital. There isn't enough attention to people. So usually talk about technology, big business, government ut utilization. So when you look at indices, global indices, uh, AI indices, the two, uh, you know, most one is the global AI index and the other one is called the government AI readiness index. You will find countries of the region that are advanced in AI like UAE, Egypt, Saudi Arabia. You will find that the component of government is the strongest. This, if at all they are raised they get high scores, it is usually with the government adoption. So I would like to see more towards uh, enabling small business, investment in human capital, skilling of people, women, men and women for the future, uh, enabling, you know, informal workers, enabling, uh, you know, people who are going out of business, not by safety net. I mean, that's not, you know, that's fine. Safety net are fine, but, you know, you help them. To, to, to earn their livelihoods and move forward and be skilled. If there is a gap in, in dealing with this issue, I think it is the, the human development angle. This is the most important thing. So um, one, and, and then of course the diversity in the region is incredible, you know, in UAE, the, you know, the teaching AI ethics in schools, for example. So AI ethics is taught in, you know, primary, from primary education, let's say. So the integration of this, the impact of this on people and integrating this into people's everyday life is important. And this is what is missing, the human and the human centric side of it. There is, you know, extreme interest in utilization in governments, in government, uh, you know, um, infrastructure, if you will, and in big business. I would like to see the balance tilt uh -huh. more towards uh -huh. uh, people, small business, civil society, education, you know, women entrepreneurs. This, I think, is, is what, and this is what we try to research in, uh -huh. in our center. So uh -huh. May that be in Egypt or 
in other parts of, of the of the region. Mm -hmm. And what is also important, as I mentioned, is a nuanced approach because scholarship on these issues, you know, you don't want it to be global with all due respect, we don't want it to be global north centric because mm -hmm. and a clear example is is gig work. You know, we mm -hmm. know that gig work has problems. We know that, okay? But if you we do not want to demonize gig work. What we do in the in the fair work uh, using the Oxford Internet Institute methodology, the fair work network, we are part of the fair network network, is that we work with the platforms themselves and mm. with policymakers, but with the platforms themselves, we bring them the fair work conditions and we tell them it, the, the, the methodology is about scoring. And we tell them this is your provisional score, you know, fair contracts, fair representation of workers, etc. We interview the workers, we interview the platforms, and we tell them this is your score. If you do this, 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 and this, your score will improve. Some of them are, you know, responsive and work with us, and it's great because by the time the report is published, the scoring improves. Some are not, and perhaps mm. not surprising, who are the ones who collaborate are the small, the, the mm. homegrown startups. The, mm -hmm. you know, youth entrepreneurs with the homegrown startups. We've had very nice examples. We've had scoring that has improved. And it's a win-win because the objective is not, you know, what is the objective? The objective is to have fair work conditions for workers. Mm -hmm. So if the score improves means that, for example, they commit to a data protection policy. They commit to, you know, certain things that are good for the workers. Mm -hmm. And this is what we want. So the, the narrative of gig work is a is a very good example of the mm. need for nuanced narratives that take place grounds up from the region based mm -hmm. on evidence on the ground. Mm. So that's that's the kind of thing that we do. So I don't I mean it's a very long answer to mm. a question, but you just brought up the, the the point of what is really you know the, the way the need to to the lens to look at AI is really about what it does to people and how we can use either businesses based on the, on AI or the technology itself to improve the livelihood for the marginalized rather than, you know, lead to exacerbated gaps. Mm, no, so important. I think um, fascinating, Nigel, especially this kind of this use of AI to arrest offline inequalities rather than reproducing them, as we see exactly in Global North kind of um, algorith algorithms of gig, gig work. Um, and so I think really kind of it, this is such a fascinating area of research using AI to kind of, um, yeah, arrest those um, very pernicious inequalities that we see in so many of these these um, new technologies. Um, OK, let's go to another question, um, which says, thank you for the talk. I wonder how you are defining AI as a technology. Um, the argument assumes AI is some artifact in relation to humans, hence the focus on a human-centric approach to technopolitics. If we understand AI as a generative platform, then humans and machines will co-produce it in multiple forms. This does not mean that there are no issues of inequalities like data invisibility, sorry, um, but instead that AI is full of agency potentials beyond policy. Um, this invites discussions about human-algo and algo-algo relationships that transcend the conventional territories of state and government structures. Um, so there's a metaphysical <laughs> question for wow. you. Can I, uh, eight o'clock Egypt time. <laughs> wow. I, I'm, uh, I, the, 
the first half I got very uh, smoothly. Do you mind reading? Just I'm I, I'm trying to find it to read sure. it along. Um, Is it the last uh, part? I mean, uh, the, when we said generative, I, I I was following until we said that the generative. AI is now getting more and more towards the machine side than the human, right? So, yeah. And so if we understand AI as a generative platform, then humans and machines will co-produce it in multiple forms. This yes. does not mean that there are no issues of, of inequalities like data in invisibility, but instead the AI is full of agency potentials beyond policy. Um, okay. This invites discussions about human algorithms, so human algorithmic and al algorithmic algorithmic relationships that transcend the conventional territories, conventional sorry territories of state and governance structures. Wow, I mean, sure, that's this is something that I, I, I would, I mean, everyone dreads. I think what I dread is that the, the I mean, even the machine is. At the end of the day, it started with a human. Now the machine is taking over. So the human biases are going in and the human errors are going in. Now the machine is taking over. To what extent will the machine correct for those? And then when it becomes more and more, as you say, you know, uh, algorithms and machine, the answer is, I don't know. I, I really don't know. It is complicated and it is, uh, I'm an optimistic person by nature, but it is of course scary. And the only answer is, think is the regular the regulation but again i say that with a grain of salt because we always talk of the i think of the cheetah and the sloth you know the cheetah is going very fast the technology is just boom 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 and regulation laws you know they take time to to catch up so uh the question is is brilliant and is sort of um, reminds me of, of how we should be worried but the the way out i think is uh is just continuous discussions and regulations and and uh, i mean the whole world and i mean there are global you know standards and global international organizations there is it's not like it's an issue that is sidelined it's, it's really at the heart of conversations all over and i don't have an answer to this i just hope in the you know in the goodness of, of humans and eventually if it's taken off by machines i don't know what's going to happen uh so i i don't have an answer to that we'll just have to wait and see but it's a brilliant question mm, a big question as well i'm not entirely sure there was an answer either because <laughs> it is a very very open-ended um yes. open -ended question um we are nearly out of time i think we've, we've we've got just about time for one more question um so this is just in order of um, the order in which the questions were sent. Um, this is from a London-based tech policy consultant and LSE alumni. In some countries of um, the MENA region outside of the GCC, such as Lebanon, where I'm from, where, where there are numerous, numerous pressing socioeconomic priorities, how can we advocate with governments for the adoption of AI? Considering the risk of widening global inequalities, what strategies or incentives could be effective in convincing governments to prioritize and integrate AI into their broader policy or developmental agendas? Okay, that's great. I, um, I'm just, I, I, I don't know if it has to be an objective to adopt AI. I would, I think I would uh, suggest that it, the, the 
purpose would be to adopt responsible AI. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the technology should not be an end to it in itself. It should be a means to an end. So uh, I'm already in Lebanon. There are, I'm just looking at my uh, slide because I think in Lebanon there, ha there have been uh, steps to integrate uh, AI. It's not something that is entirely foreign uh, to the country. We indeed, we do have part research partners from Lebanon who are looking at uh, you know uh, steps taken for the governance of AI and and technology and data as well so it is not all um, new to to Lebanon i think the question becomes how can what is adopted would be suitable for the country mm. rather than just take it as an end in itself but as a means to uh, hopefully uh, a, a higher end of utilizing, of achieving the development objectives of the country. Mm -hmm. uh, I realize that in Lebanon, of course, there is, uh, you know, really a very serious economic problem for sure. And uh, at the end of the day, I think it's important to take from the technology what is suitable for the country. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we just look out for our research outputs because we do have um, research partners at the American University of Beirut and at the Policy Institute in Lebanon who are doing research on, uh, may that be gig work, but also on governance of data in the health sector uh, and AI in the health sector in, in Lebanon, mostly data, uh, and also for food security. So there is stuff happening. And the advice would be for the government to engage the different stakeholders, listen to the academics who've already done work on this, to the civil society who are already working on this. And it becomes an iterative process of adopting policies that address the developmental needs of the country. So the, the, the only way is actually through advocacy, research advocacy between the different stakeholders, you know, academics, civil society, um, and uh, in, in conversation with the policymakers. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks so much, Nagran. I think this question, this point, is quite a nice um, place to end, actually, because it very much speaks to your kind of overarching framework to provide this bottom-up, qualitative, nuanced account that is particularly pushing back on these kind of universalizing global north narratives, um, yeah. particularly narratives that see the MENA region as a kind of um, just a, a, a region that's not differentiated. So I think this speaks very, very nicely to your point that actually we need much more nuanced, much more grounded, um, qualitative almost kind of approaches to um, bottom up approaches to, to technology in the region or to understandings of technology in the region. Um, so we are out of time. I'm sorry we didn't get to um, come through, get through all of the questions in the Q&A, but thank you very much um, for the questions. Um, and thank you very much to our audience for being here. And thank you, of course, to Professor Nagla Rizik for your wonderful um, keynote presentation. Um, and thank you in particular for being here on a weekend um, <laughs> when I know it's getting late for you. So wishing you a very nice weekend as well. <laughs> um, thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. Thank you so much. And wonderful to hear um, to hear to hear your talk. I learned a lot. Um, and just finally to say, um, with my LSE Middle East hat on, please do check out audience members um, our Instant Coffee podcast, um, the first episode of which series three is out now on um, various platforms, Instagram. Um, and the LSE Middle East Centre website. We do have um, an episode with Nagla coming up soon, so stay tuned for that. And um, yeah, thank you very much for being here, um, everyone. All right, and thank you so much. Thank you. thank you, Pauline, thank you, LSE. Thank you very much, Middle East Centre, I appreciate it. Bye.